Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today we have a uh, relatively interesting episode. After I was listening to a podcast myself, I heard it. I was uh, JAMA Clinical Reviews. You know, I've got to stay up to date on my medicine, and I heard it. And I really wanted that guest to come onto this show. So today we accomplished exactly that. But before we get on with this, if you are not already subscribed to our mailing list, make sure to do so. So we have all of the updates coming on the podcast, all the new stuff we have coming on and some sneak peeks. And with that, let's get into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest with us, and that is Dr. Jeffrey Linder. So I was listening to uh, the podcast, JAMA Clinical Reviews, and they were talking about kind of primary care stuff, general health checks, and that's something that we really want to discuss on this podcast. So I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a little bit, but before we get to that, um, he is super qualified, way more qualified than I am. So I'm going to make sure that I'm listening as much as I can this episode because uh, his patient reviews are also outstanding. So there's a lot to learn from him. Um, He completed his medical school at Northwestern, did residency at UCSF, fellowship at MassGen, and then also got his master's in public health at the Harvard uh, School of Public Health. Currently, he is the uh, chief of the Division of Internal Medicine and Geriatrics at Northwestern and has published over 160 articles, maybe more judging by the amount of... uh, certificates he has in his background, probably a lot more. (laughs) And his main uh, focus is to improve primary care in the United States. So welcome to the show, Dr. Linder. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was a very generous uh, introduction. And something has to be said about all the certificates. So there's a lot of experience in there. Yeah, well, I, but I'd also point out the, you know, I've got a bicycle standing right in, right in front of the mall too. So, you know, that, that comes first. Definitely. So to start us off, um, can you tell the listener just a little bit up, little bit about yourself, kind of your journey through medicine and why you do what you do? Sure. So I uh, today, as you said, the chief of general internal medicine and geriatrics here at Northwestern, uh, I do research on uh, primary care, uh, internal medicine and primary care in the United States. I do a lot of work on um, inappropriate use of treatments, uh, and how do we avoid overuse of things? So a lot of my research is on overuse of antibiotics. I have projects on overuse of, um, opioids and, uh, over testing and over treatment of the elderly, but I'm, I'm very interested in anything that really has to do with primary care and improving primary care in the United States. I absolutely love that. I think the uh, overtreatment and overdiagnosis, I've read a couple of books. I think one was straight up titled Overdiagnosis, but um, that's definitely a problem. When you think of prevention, oftentimes you think of doing a lot of things to prevent downstream effects, but you also don't want to overtreat, overdiagnose, overdo all these things because those can also uh, 
cause harm to some extent. Um, sometimes it could be catastrophic, sometimes maybe insignificant, but definitely something very important. Well, and, and we'll, we'll get into it when we talk about this article we did, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, the article that sort of brought me to you is about, uh, what we called, um, health checks or just checkups and, uh, checkups. And, uh, it might not be apparent to people why a checkup might have an adverse effect. Um, but even getting a checkup too often could have downstream bad effects if it leads to over testing, over treatment, um, over diagnosis. So, you know, we got, we got to get the dose of everything right, including, you know, stuff, we, stuff we do as doctors and checkups. For sure. I can't wait for that part of the episode. But before we get there, uh, I want to ask you what your kind of definition of preventive medicine is, just because there's several kind of definitions or ways of looking at preventive medicine. And what does it mean to you? To me, it just means maintaining health. Um, and, you know, it, it's not so much a medicine. I mean, it is, it is sort of a funny name, preventive medicine. Like we have to do something or there's a pill for prevention. Um, but it's, it, to my mind, it's, it's more holistic than that. Um, much more about the, the life you lead and, and the things you do to, to stay well, being connected with medical care can be part of it, but it's probably not most of it. How much of a percentage would you think, uh, being connected to medical care prevention is? Well, you know, there, there's this, uh, this saw that, um, you know, what we do that's, that's attributed, attributable to our overall health, probably connection to receipt of medical care is probably only 20% of it. So our social circumstances are of course a huge per, uh, part of it and, uh, our behaviors are a humongous part of it, uh, as well. And so both of those, both our environment and behavior, account for way more of, um, of, you know, what people would construe as their health than either their own genetics or healthcare. For sure. I find that, um, I don't know how much you use social media or browse through Instagram or whatnot, but it seems that there's typically two camps when it comes to kind of this, uh, notion of preventive care. One is that forget the doctor. All they do is they push pills. They give you like diagnoses and do things that you don't want done to you. Then the other camp is trust your doctors, just get everything tested, make sure you're clear for everything, get your antibiotics right when you need them. And the approach you're kind of uh, talking about right here is kind of not necessarily even halfway, but maybe just that 20% mark that you said. And it's just enough to kind of set everything up, it seems, and get the ball rolling, but not like taking over their lives. Right. And I, you know, my training, so you mentioned, uh, got a master's in public health. So my training is in biostatistics and, and epidemiology in addition to medicine. And I'm very focused on things we know have evidence behind them. Uh, and in terms of prevention, the list of things that we know prevent bad stuff to happening to people down the road is actually pretty, pretty short you mind sharing what's on that list if you know off the top of your head? Sorry well, from putting you on the spot. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, the and that that'll that'll take us to the the article as well. But mm -hmm. um, for for people's own reference, the the sort of most august body in the United States is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and so this is a group that is focused on reviewing the evidence, encouraging the generation of evidence, and putting out reports of uh, of things that have been proven to prevent bad stuff from happening to people. Um, you know, the reality of medicine is when we go looking for something, we find it. Um, but it's actually not a nat people then naturally think, well, if we find it, then we need to do something about it. And then if we do something about it, 
that'll prevent something bad from happening. That's actually far from a straight line. And it really depends at kind of every step of the way. But, you know, one example is uh, in, in your introduction or, or um, kind of the, the preamble to this, you sort of mentioned the camp of people where it's like, I want to get checked for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I have people come in all the time. It's like, I'm here for my routine labs, which I will tell your listeners, routine labs are not a thing. Um, you know, beyond uh, in select groups, uh, getting an HIV test once in your life, um, hepatitis C, checking cholesterol periodically and not as not as not very often um and maybe a few other things depending on risk factors like that's it nobody recommends getting labs um what happens when you do that is just uh you know i refer to that as a minefield of false positives you just like something pops up as abnormal and that's actually not a reflection of of an individual's health that's a that's a reflection of um you know, randomness in, in testing. And it often leads to over-treatment and, and more testing and sometimes like dangerous treatment and testing. But you were asking me a second ago about sort of the list of things, you know, so there are very few labs. Um, there's actually almost nothing in the physical exam uh, that's been proven to prevent bad stuff from happening to people down the road. And those things include getting your blood pressure checked, your height, and your weight. And then maybe some part of a physical exam for women for cervical cancer screening. Um, and then other things that have been proven will be probably well known to, to your listeners. And, you know, there, there, there are particulars around each one of these, but screening for colon cancer, screening for breast cancer, um, screening for prostate cancer and things, things like that. For sure. And we'll touch a little bit more on the nitty gritty. I have a couple more questions I want to ask you about that, maybe about specific groups and whatnot. But uh, you touched a little bit on that yearly checkup. And traditionally for our listeners, the idea behind these things is you go to your doctor once a year, um, kind of, and you get that clean bill of health, hopefully, where they get your yearly labs, as you were talking about, you get your blood pressure, height, weight, you they chat up the doc for a little bit, they ask you about how you're doing, and then they move on, to, move on to the next patient, you don't see the doctor for another year. Are those checkups necessary? How do they come to be? And are we going to do away with them in the future? What do you think? Well, that's a, that's a lot of questions. Um, but yeah, let, let me let me sort of try to dig in, you know, at, at the at the root of it, we were looking for evidence that uh, whether or not getting a regular checkup is associated with improved or rather decreased mortality. So right, does seeing your doctor reduce your chance of dying uh, earlier than people who don't? And bad news for your listeners is that there's actually no evidence, you know, no good consistent <laughs> evidence that seeing your doctor regularly uh, reduces your chance of dying compared to a group of people, say, who, who aren't seeing um, seeing a doctor. Similarly, there's no evidence that uh, getting a regular checkup reduces what, are, what we refer to in the paper as cardiovascular outcomes, mostly heart attacks and strokes. Um, but, um, but the good news is that getting a regular checkup is associated with a number of things that probably prevent uh, bad stuff from happening kind of down the road. So detection and management of chronic diseases and for adults, and I'm, I'm focused on adult care, um, high blood pressure looms large. Like that is a major um, source of uh, cardiovascular badness down, down the road. So seeing your doctor regularly increases your chance of chronic disease detection and control of some risk factors. Um, seeing your doctor regularly definitely in, uh, increases your chances of getting recommended preventive services. So I mentioned sort of these, this restricted list of blood tests you should be getting, cancer screening, immunizations. 
Um, there, there's sort of a variable association with seeing your doctor regularly and then health behaviors. So you would think, okay, do I, if I, you know, as a doctor, I'd love to be able to tell you, oh yeah, people come and see me and they leave and they stop smoking and they exercise and they, (laughs) if only, if only, if only, uh, it's hard to do. That's a big lift for an individual, much less sort of a doctor. So, um, having, having his or her patients, uh, sort of, uh, behave better. There's a little bit of evidence that people do behave a little bit uh, better when they get a regular checkup, but uh, kind of weak. One interesting thing was um, we, we looked at what are referred to as patient reported outcomes. So these are measures of patient well-being, anxiety, uh, quality of life. Those actually get better when people visit their doctor, which and we can talk more about this later. It's sort of interesting to think why that might be getting better just by seeing seeing um, a doctor. And then, as I alluded to before, we look for adverse effects. So, you know, you can definitely get too much medical care. And so if you go in and see a doctor and get too much testing, um, that can actually lead to bad stuff. And there are a few studies that found a few adverse effects, but um, it, it, this was usually in subgroups. Um, and the, the clinical significance of them is, is a little bit hard to parse. So that's a long, long winded way of, of getting at your, your original question was, mm-hmm. should, should people be getting checkups? And the short answer is yes. But then the question is how often should you be getting it and what should it consist of? Um, and here's where I would, um, you know, I, I definitely insert a, a, a note about what people refer to as the annual physical, um, which also really shouldn't be a thing um, that you don't need to see your doctor every year, particularly if you're young and healthy. And as I already told told you, the the physical exam or the physical really doesn't need to be done in somebody with no symptoms. For sure. We're touching on the physical a little bit more in another question that I have um, coming up. But I want to ask you, you said that it shouldn't be done in people who are young and healthy. So are there specific groups who should be coming in yearly and kind of what are those groups of people who should be coming in? So um, groups of people who should be coming in are those that haven't been connected to primary care in some time. So if it's been years since you've seen a doctor, um, it probably is worth coming in, you know, if for no other reason than to make sure that you're up to date on these clinical preventive services and that you're, you get connected to a place where you could get care if, heaven forbid, something starts, starts to go wrong. Um, so people who haven't been connected with primary care, if you know you're overdue for preventive services, immunizations, cancer screening, definitely sh- you should come in. Um, and um, but if, if you're somebody who's sort of been regularly have a clean bill of health, you, you know, you probably don't need to come in every year. And also to the list of people who should be coming in regularly, if you have known chronic conditions, you're on a lot of medicines, um, you know, there, there is, a, um, a role for, uh, blood test monitoring of some medicines we prescribe to patients. Um, so if you have chronic conditions, even if it is high blood pressure, Uh, coming in from time to time or more often definitely makes sense. And for those of you who are a little bit more academically minded and want to get into the nitty gritty of this, this is all coming from a recently published article and also uh, something that Dr. Linder talked about in the JAMA Clinical Review podcast. So if you want to go hear a little bit more of the nitty gritty and the science that we're not diving into in this podcast here, then please go ahead and do so. I'll have that all in the show notes as well, because there's um, a lot that Dr. Leonard just talked about that you can get in a little bit more detail if you look at those things. I have an interesting question for you, and that is, let's say we're moving in the age of kind of like digital health 
and whatnot. So do you think it'd be useful for, for people to maybe measure their own blood pressure, height and weight, and kind of have some sort of portal that they can log that into the doctor. And then maybe every once in, let's say three or five years, uh, they need to come in. Do you think that's more useful than just not seeing any anything at all or the person for five years? Yeah, I, th- I think there is potential for telehealth. And that's one thing the pandemic has, has um, shown us, that people who... Um, it, it definitely is a viable way of of, uh, of providing care and connection. I worry a little bit about people not being connected to a, um, a site of care and not having somebody who, you know, a, a place of primary care that doesn't kind of know an individual. So setting that up uh, does seem to be important. But if it's if you are um, somebody who, um, you know, you're, you're well, um, yeah, you could imagine definitely a circumstance where checking in about like mental health is okay, physical functions are right, your blood pressure is good, um, and kind of screening out people who don't need to come in. Because we have, you know, we definitely do a lot more annual visits than we probably need to be doing. Um, and checking in in a little bit more, I don't want to say a superficial way, but checking in a more periodic way um, definitely has potential. For sure. And I think one of the other issues that this might also address is the physician shortage, specifically in primary care physicians, where I don't want to put any percentages out there because I have literally no idea. But um, there's probably a large or not large. There's probably a percentage of people that are not getting seen or that could be seen or could be targeted a little bit better so that they come in for people who need it versus people who are getting annual physicals. And I think that just helps the workload of primary care physicians as well, where they don't have to see someone um, and do paperwork for someone, which is probably more cumbersome. And uh, that person doesn't really need that care. There's more potential to do harm than good. So I think that could also touch on that issue as well. Absolutely. The the um, you know one of the reasons why we we sort of have worked ourselves into this cer- this um, circumstance where we're giving too many antibiotics, too many opioids, doing too much testing is because of the time crunch, particularly in primary care. We get these very short visits with people. Patients come in, they feel like this is my only chance to see the doctor. And it turns what should be a relaxed, get to know you, understand the patient and the patient understand the doctor kind of interaction into this really fraught, charged, like, I've got to get everything right now because I'm never going to mm-hmm. get to see the doctor again for another year. Um, and wouldn't it be better if we had kind of better accessibility on a more periodic basis that, that allowed, you know, a, a periodic face-to-face interaction to not be this supercharged, I got to get it all right now interaction? For sure. And within that getting it all action, there's also the physical exam, which uh, we touched on a little bit earlier. And you also talk about saying you don't necessarily need to do all the parts of the physical exam. Kind of, can you take our listeners through what a standardized typical physical exam is and your thoughts and ideas on that? Yeah. So, I mean, this will, I mean, this may be a little shocking to to your listeners, but (laughs) as I mentioned before, the only parts of the physical exam that have ever been proven to kind of prevent bad stuff from happening to people down to people down the road in a, in a, you know, otherwise thought to be healthy, asymptomatic person is blood pressure, height, and weight. Um, and then maybe, um, uh, a pelvic exam for women to get uh, periodic cervical cancer screening, listening to the heart, listening to the lungs. And I'm, you know, I'm sure I, I can already picture my cardiology and, and pulmonary friends, like <laughs> listening to this podcast, 
thinking, like, what are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but, uh, you know, it's never been proven that having somebody listen to your heart, uh, will, you know, prevent any, anything bad, for, bad from happening. Having said that, um, if people come in with symptoms, um, you know, or concerns, um, then I think, uh, you know, there's absolutely a role for the physical exam. I'm a, I'm still a huge fan of the physical exam. I think a well-done physical exam gives us a lot of information about how to best direct testing and really help people, but just sort of pulling a healthy person off the street and doing a head to toe physical exam is really unlikely to find something that's useful for the patient to know. Definitely. I want to ask you, I haven't personally seen or read, or I'm not as well read in the literature about the harms of like listening to the heart and lungs. So can you kind of describe what are the potential harms if you do like that uh, same checkup of listening to heart and lungs on every single person? Yeah, the harms are not that big, but it's just, it's more maybe about anxiety and wasting the patient's time. Uh, so, you know, w- one example is um, a benign heart murmur, let's say. Um, and actually one question I ask our residents and medical students all the time, like if you hear a, a murmur, like when do, when do you not need to get an echocardiogram? Um, and it's, and it's a, a you know, a, a non holosystolic murmur. So in apologies to your listeners, but I'll get really technical, but you know, it's, it's this a is good, this is good for me right now. It's a good review. Yeah. It's a non holosystolic <laughs> murmur at the left sternal border that doesn't radiate. Um, and so everybody else, yeah, you should probably get an echocardiogram. So an ultrasound test of the heart to take a look. Um, but sort of finding, finding a murmur, telling the patient, oh, you know, you have a murmur and now I've made you anxious and I've given you a sort of a a diagnosis that, uh, and then not really doing anything about it, um, doesn't really get the patient, um, uh, anything necessarily. So, um, those, those are the main harms of, of, um, of the physical exam. The dangers are for the physical exam are probably less than what I worry about for un, uh, like unfettered testing, you know, the, the, the patient or the doctor who's mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, we just need to check for everything. Um, yeah. there are the dangers get, uh, get bigger because we often, that often leads us on a progression to doing progressively more invasive, dangerous tests to make sure there's nothing bad going on. Um, and so, you know, if we're going to do a test in somebody who's asymptomatic, we want to really make sure that the evidence behind it, uh, is, is solid. Yeah. And I like how you touch on the anxiety aspect of kind of the physical exam, because sometimes, um, patients may or may not be a little bit more suggestible to things. And if you, even suggest or mention that something may be abnormal or you just don't say normal, then they're kind of anxious about it. The next time they feel maybe just a little bit of a flutter in their heart or like some random feeling that's not quote unquote normal, they come in for testing, testing gets done, may or may not be indicated or warranted, probably not in that instance. And there you go. Healthcare spending, anxiety just keeps going from there. Yeah. Um, the question I wanted to ask you, this is the discussion I had with my friend about it was, um, if we're talking about the listening to the heart and lungs, would you think that students should also not need to listen to the heart and lungs? Uh, for example, if you're a third and fourth year medical student on clerkships, typically when you go see a patient, this is for our listeners, when we go see a patient, we, um, 
do the physical exam. We listen to the heart, we listen to the lungs, and then we go report it to our preceptor um, or a resident, whoever's supervising us. So do you think that students should also not be doing it? No, they, they probably should. I mean, you got you have to learn it at some point. Um, and knowing what normal sounds like, you know, learning what normal sounds like is is pretty important. So I think there is, there is a role. And, you know, I'll, I'll confess again, I, I um, I said, I'm a fan of the physical exam and I'll call myself out even more and say like physical exam nerd. Like there was a, a point when I was doing my own third year, uh, rotation where like, I made sure I had an otoscope, that thing we use to, uh, <laughs> yeah. in people's ears when I was in the hospital. And there's, there's usually very little, little need, but to get better at it, you know, I just made it a point to ask every patient I saw for about a week, like, is it okay if I look in your ears? Cause I'm just trying to get better at it. Uh, and patients are incredibly generous about that too. But so yeah, there is something to be said for learning about it. Yeah. For uh, to play devil, devil's advocate, my friend was also saying that if you have like a supremely confident um, medical student who thinks they hear a murmur or who thinks everything is normal, um, they have the potential to do harm there. And also like with that straight anxiety effect for a lot of patients, um, medical students are still doctors, quote unquote, they're being seen with someone with a white coat. So that was kind of like the devil's advocate part where should we really be doing it? And I think I was leaning a little bit more on the side of, I found it super valuable to learn what normal is and to be able to distinguish what abnormal is when um, symptoms arise or when you actually need it. So that was kind of just this fun discussion we had. Definitely. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. All right. Um, one of the things you are very interested in, it seems, is improving primary care through reducing harm, just kind of delivering better health care. So um, what are some of the harms, the biggest harms that healthcare does now and how do we improve them? Yeah, I alluded to a couple of them. Uh, so antibiotic prescribing and, and opioids, uh, they both definitely have their role. Um, uh, but uh, for antibiotics, despite you know, tw- at least 20 years going back to kind of the late uh, 1980s into the early 1990s uh, is when the calls uh, felt like they really came out to use antibiotics correctly. There's, we still see a lot of antibiotics prescribed um, for viral illnesses. And, you know, some of the reasons are doctors think patients want them. They want to maintain patient satisfaction. There's not a lot of time to explain to people why they might not be necessary uh, and so forth. So um, antibiotic prescribing, um, opioids, of course, um, are for individual patients probably even more dangerous. Um, so um, and I, I feel like the pendulum is swinging to a better place. We definitely don't want to undertreat serious pain. But at the same time, uh, we know that opioids for uh, minor pain is you know, not a great idea and that a certain proportion of people are going to wind up with opioid use disorder um, who get exposed to opioids. Um, you know, I think we over, overuse imaging. Um, a good example is MRI for low back pain. Um, there's good evidence that um, people who get an early MRI for low back pain as compared to similar people who don't get an MRI are way more likely to get surgery. And if you compare those two groups of people a year later, they're in exactly the same place uh, as 
uh, in terms of pain. And so, you know, this idea that you're going to get an MRI and it's going to show you what's wrong and you're going to fix it um, is unfortunately, I wish that were the case, but that's, that's kind of, uh, kind of misguided. We actually have a lot of episodes on that specific topic with uh, lower back pain imaging on our uh, podcast. We had um, uh, Michael Ray on our podcast who talks a lot about pain. He's kind of a pain specialist is one of his things. And we talked a lot about how whether or not you get an MRI or whether or not um, like whatever age you are, you may or may not already have a bulging disc, a popped or slipped disc, quote unquote, and you might not know it. And if you do suddenly get back pain and get an MRI, sure, they might find the bulging disc, but was it really that that was causing pain? So it's kind of a really complex topic and definitely we're overusing it. And one of the harms of overusing it is you go to surgery um, that cause even more harm. Let's say you accidentally cut a nerve. There's like a um, mistake during the procedure somehow, which I unfortunately saw in a pain clinic. And now the patient's in like severe pain for the rest of their life because they actually have nerve damage. And then... Also, this is where healthcare costs come in as well, which continue to rise. Absolutely. And I mean, one, one way I, I tell patients uh, about MRIs for low back pain is the MRI is there to show the surgeon where to cut. And so if, if you're not ready for surgery, you know, you, you shouldn't get an MRI because as you alluded, if we pull, you know, pick a certain age, but if you, if we pulled 160 year olds off the street and threw them all into an M MRI scanner, you know, we would find that probably about 50 to 60% of them have slipped discs, um, uh, other abnormalities that, uh, if they were having back pain, we might attribute to what we're seeing on the MRI. Exactly. And I want to touch a little bit more on the antibiotic stewardship as well. Um, I started reading a little bit more about antibiotic resistance myself just um, to learn a little, I guess. And can you talk about some of the harms of over, over prescribing uh, antibiotics and kind of what that does for the patient and how that changed maybe the long term um, scope of medicine? Yeah. And I I actually when I talk about particularly outpatient antibiotic prescribing and, you know, worth noting that. Um, over 75% of antibiotics prescribed in the United States are prescribed in outpatient care, whereas um, there's this term called antibiotic stewardship. So the responsible use of antibiotics is very much an infectious disease specialty focused inpatient, so in the hospital mm. um, focused activity. But the vast majority of antibiotics are prescribed by primary care doctors in outpatient clinics. Um, and so in outpatient clinics, the main, um, the main risk to uh, individual patients is actually having an allergic reaction to the drug. Um, so you, particularly if you have a viral illness, and we're always trying to balance benefits of a treatment versus the risks. If you have a viral illness, there is a 0% chance that that antibiotic is going to help you and a very real chance that it could hurt you. And so, you know, you're, you're putting a chemical in your body and that can occasionally help and sometimes can hurt. Um, and so to me, that's what I'm always talking to individual patients about. Um, also for individual patients, it messes up your gut. Um, so people worry about the microbiome and having he healthy bacteria in their gut. Uh, taking an antibiotic kind of wipes out all the bacteria in your gut. People get diarrhea all the time. Um, and, you know, we know what's in, in your gut is, you know, should be kind of a healthy flora of, of bacteria. And that gets altered for probably about three months at least when you take an antibiotic. Um, healthcare costs are, are not a huge problem here because antibiotics, particularly outpatient antibiotics, are not usually big mm -hmm. dollar, big ticket items. But then what you're alluding to is uh, antibiotic resistance. So the more antibiotics we use, 
the more resistant bacteria become to antibiotics. Um, you know, we worry about that both for individual patients. So the fear being like, if I give you a, an antibiotic for uh, a cold or a sinus infection, then you develop a pneumonia. The bacteria that causes um, the pneumonia is resistant to the antibiotic you were exposed to previously. Um, and then definitely on a population basis, the more antibiotics we sprinkle on a population, the more antibiotic resistant bacteria we have. And so, um, you know, these are a precious resource and we will, you know, we have seen that, that, um, a, a rise in infections that we can't treat with certain antibiotics. And then a very few infections we can't treat with any antibiotics because we've overused them. Like, you know, the more we use them, um, you know, the more, the more, resistant um the bacteria will become to the antibiotics and that to me is pretty scary because um if we get some common bugs that suddenly become resistant to commonly used antibiotics we have to use uh bigger guns so to speak of antibiotics which also have the potential to, to do more harm and also just increasing that cascade and uh it doesn't look like a good recipe so hopefully we can uh, prevent that right the good news is if we do are careful with antibiotics or, you know, in, in uh, cycle through antibiotics, we can actually see the, the sensitivity of, of uh, bacteria to antibiotics go up or rather the, the, the prevalence, how common antibiotic resistant bacteria are go down. So, um, you know, if we use these responsibly, like they'll, they'll be around and be, be useful. But, you know, a key phrase is, that I use with patients is, you know, I only want to prescribe an antibiotic for you when it's at, when it's really necessary and it's more likely to help you than hurt you. Mm -hmm. Speaking of responsible use and absolutely necessary, we've discussed um, kind of what a primary care physician shouldn't be doing regularly and some things that they should. So when you have a patient that comes in, just like a general patient encounter, what kind of goes on in that encounter? How much of that are you thinking about prevention versus acute care of whatever might be coming up? And um, kind of what are the trends going forward in that? Yeah, it, it depends why the, why the person came in. I mean, if they're there to... Um, you know, meet me for the first time um, and don't, they don't have any uh, a physical, you know, we refer to them as complaints in medicine. Like the patient has no complaints um, uh, and they're, they're there for a checkup. Um, I am uh, spending time to learn about their medical history, their family history, um, you know, what we refer to as the social history. So what their job is, who they live with, uh, a lot about their behavior. So um, you know, I'm actually surprised we have not mentioned the word smoking or tobacco yet uh, in terms of prevention, because that's like one of the worst things you can do. You can do for your health is is uh, smoke. So I'm definitely asking about that. Safe alcohol use, um, uh, sexual habits. Um, uh, are they in a safe environment? Uh, you know, again, particularly for younger people, um, a lot of a lot of um, people imagine getting to the doctor and you're thinking about cardiovascular health and cholesterol. You know, of course, for a younger person, the, the overwhelming risks are uh, interpersonal. Uh, both through sexually transmitted diseases and, and violence, frankly, uh, either self, self-harm or interaction mm -hmm. with other people. So I'm asking questions about, um, you know, whether, whether or not they, they feel safe. Um, and, uh, and then seeing if they, you know, are they up to date with preventive services um, and um, trying to answer any other questions they have about um, following a good diet, which I didn't mention in my, my list here. I will definitely ask people about their, about their diet and their exercise habits too, which are key, a key part of prevention. 
Yeah. And when it comes to those social determinants of health, which also I'm surprised we haven't discussed yet because they're a huge aspect, which you just talked about them now, um, kind of when you notice that something could be better, quote unquote, with the social determinants of health, like there's a risk of um, something going on there. Are there resources that you provide patients or kind of what is a physician's role in addressing those social determinants of health? Yeah, it, re- it really depends. Um, you know, so you know, one, one social determinant, uh, you know, it, does the person live in a safe environment? So is the, you know, is the neighborhood safe? So if somebody is fearful for their life, um, you know, going out at certain times of day, um, you know, that's great that I think that they should eat right and get exercise outside. But if they feel like they're in more danger from, from going out, that's not a realistic, uh, uh, a realistic solution. And frankly, I'm not sure I have a great, answer to improve somebody's neighborhood. And so, um, you know, from a policy perspective, I think we all kind of need to be focused on the social determinants of health and doing all that we can to um, uh, improving neighborhood health, uh, the health of cities, um, uh, because that ultimately will wind up helping way more people than individuals seeing doctors one at a time. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, so it basically sounds like as a physician, your role is to take into account and understand kind of the social determinants um, around that one patient and tailor your suggestions and recommendations and your conversation with the patient kind of around those versus addressing them directly because that's kind of out of the scope of practice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all in scope. I mean, we're looking out for the the holistic well-being of our patients. And so at a minimum, understanding that is key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, as, as a, as a physician for my individual patient, I do not have the answer to systemic poverty, systemic racism. Um, you know, I, outside of my role, um, um, with the individual patient, I think we all have a, a, a place to, uh, you know, a role to play in, um, in trying to improve well-being, um, reduce poverty, uh, be anti-racist. Um, uh, but it's, it's hard with an individual patient, but at a minimum understanding the challenges confronting an individual patient is totally key. Definitely. Maybe a little easier of an answer here is when it comes to like exercise and nutrition, um, what are the kind of things that you're recommending to a patient? Are you recommending things? Are you kind of linking them up with resources? How does that conversation go? Yeah. So, um, let me start with, um, diet. Um, my general recommendation is, you know, I want my patients eating a varied diet that consists mostly of real food. And actually, I, I on my desk sitting here, I have an orange. Um, you know, that, that's going to be my snack in a little bit when we're done recording the podcast. Um, you know, so plenty of fruits and vegetables, um, uh, real food, but need to be need to understand somebody's, um, you know, say financial situation because uh, it. Uh, poor, poor nutrient food is often much more financially accessible than uh, nutrient rich foods. And so need to be sensitive to that and look for alternative sources of, of um, food for people sometimes. And then exercise, you know, exercise is tough because it, um, you know, the, however much somebody's doing more is always better. Uh, as long as somebody's not hurting themselves. So um, the biggest impact I can have is getting somebody who's doing nothing to doing anything. Uh, and so, um, and the trick is working with the patient and sort of figuring out what they enjoy doing, what they can fit into the rest of their life and encouraging them to do it. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, I like 
riding, I like love riding a bicycle. I've started to like running, you know, a lot, heaven help me. Um, but you know, a lot of people think those things are painful and stupid and that's fine. Um, but if people like, you know, basketball, going for a walk, tennis, whatever it is that somebody enjoys, um, you know, getting your heart rate up, uh, at least three or four times a week yields huge benefits in terms of health going forward. Yeah. And as far as that goes, um, the uh, cardiovascular exercise guidelines are 150 minutes a week of like the moderate level or the, uh, two to shoot. I need to memorize this. I should really know this, but there's actually a chart that the CDC has out there for what qualifies as the moderate and vigorous um, intensities. And for our listeners out there, if you want to go look it up, it just easily shows you. And there's a ton of activities on there. So I like how you mentioned um, exactly that you can do things that you enjoy. You don't necessarily have to get on a treadmill or an elliptical, go for a bike ride. If you just like look at that list, there's a ton of activities you can do and just go pick one of those. If you really enjoy it, there you go. You're meeting your uh, guidelines. And you're probably doing something that's good for you. And one, one thing I always, a phrase I often use with patients is, you know, I, I'm talking to them about exercise and I always interrupt myself and I say, I always worry that when, when I say exercise, you're thinking you have to go to the gym and that's actually yeah. not what, you know, there's plenty of us like, you know, going to the gym, like torture, pure torture. Um, and, um, uh, but whatever you, you know, even if it's, you know, doing like physical work outside. Um, but yeah, um, that'd be great if you could put the link to that, that, uh, site in the, the show notes. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And, uh, the other thing that I really like about exercise and the way that, um, you suggested it, where it's doing something that you enjoy is because it also helps out your mental health because when you do something you enjoy, it kind of just alleviates a lot of stressors. It's a great anxiolytic and it knocks out a couple birds with one stone. So it's actually way more important um, than a lot of people think it might be. So love that you're recommending that. Most definitely. Okay. So we're going to touch on the pandemic just a little bit, but not directly on COVID-19, but kind of on the deliverance of healthcare. So we touched a little bit on um, virtual health, like telehealth, telemedicine, all those kinds of things. How has the pandemic affected your experience delivering healthcare? Do you think it might've been a little bit better with telehealth in some instances and um, maybe in what ways was it worse? Yeah. I, I I think that gets back to something we were talking about a little while ago with the the, um, the flexibility that telehealth uh, has. So, for example, I, I saw somebody last week through a telehealth visit, a patient, one of my colleagues, um, and we're we're trying to adjust her diabetes medicines. She has all of her morning sugars. She, she's doing a great job checking her sugar. Um, I didn't need to see her in person. She didn't need to take the time to travel, park take uh, or take public transportation to come see me. We worked out a plan and I said, I'm going to see you again next week. And I want you to make these changes and let's see, um, let's see how, how you're doing. That convenience for the patient and the ease with which I can see them is a huge, um, you know, huge bonus. Um, and, uh, you know, this is somebody who's a little bit, uh, shall we say concerned and or distrustful of, of my plan. I said, like, let's just try this for a week. Let's, and we'll, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk next week. Um, and so having that opportunity, um, uh, is tremendous. And so I think going forward, the, the generalizable point there is trying to be more flexible about, uh, the way, the way we deliver care for the individual patient and the individual circumstance that, you know, if you have a certain problem, 
things might start off with a telemedicine visit. It might, you might follow up with an in-person visit and do another follow-up with a telemedicine visit. Like that sounds like a lot of visits, but ultimately that could be way more efficient than, um, uh, you know, scheduling multiple in-person visits, uh, which take up a lot more staff time and, you know, never, never mind how much more convenient it is for the patient. <laughs> Do you think that, um, I know like kind of when the electronic medical record came, I mean, I always knew it, um, <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot there with, uh, right. timing and whatnot, but I always knew it. But like when the electronic medical record came out, a lot of physicians might've thought that, oh, this is just going to be a burden. Um, it's going to take longer to use. It's not going to make things efficient, which it may or may not have. Um, what do you think about telehealth? Does it actually make life easier for physicians and kind of um, seeing the patients that you actually do need to see and kind of, quote unquote, weeding out the ones that you don't need to see? I think we're still learning how to use it effectively. I mean, we are very, the whole American healthcare system is still very locked into a paradigm where like you see people in person um, and like that's the only way to deliver care, which and wh where else in our life do we do that? Travel agents banks. I mean, you know, like every, every, every other healthcare system or every other, um, system in our economy has gotten much more, uh, flexible and, and is making good use of our present technology. The reason why healthcare we're kind of locked into this paradigm is, is the way we pay for healthcare. Um, overwhelmingly, um, insurance companies only pay doctors for when they see people in person and for doing things to patients, uh, which, neither is convenient for patients nor is efficient for, for prevention. Yeah. So it's interesting. You mentioned the insurance companies. I actually had a podcast, um, two days ago with a insurance company executive, and we were talking a little bit on that side of the coin. And so it kind of, um, it was just interesting to see how health he sees healthcare evolving and where they see the payment structure going. So I just find that interesting. If our listeners have already listened to that episode, um, make sure you go do so because might provide a little bit of context for this. But one of the things that he brought up also is that um, digital health right now is just kind of adding costs on top of what there already is because the patient, you see them online, then you see them in person, and then that same dynamic might occur. So for every patient now that comes in, you might also have to bill for an online one. So um, that's one of the things that probably needs to get ironed out as well. Agreed. And I mean, you know, the way primary care doctors are overwhelmingly paid, I said this before, is for seeing people in person and doing things to them. Um, as a primary care doctor, I would much rather get paid in some ways for just keeping people healthy. But unfortunately, the, we, uh, we pay for what's easy to measure. And it's much mm -hmm. more challenging to measure, am I keeping my patient, my patients, my patient panel healthy? Uh, I think it can be done, but, but, you know, once you're just paying me to do that rather than I get a little bit more income every time I see somebody in person, like that changes my entire uh, mental orientation uh, where I'm trying to do things that are most efficient, both for me and for the patient. For sure. For sure. And I want to shift gears just a little bit as we get to the end of this podcast. And we talked a lot about um, kind of in the patient room and the patient um, physician dynamic. I want to touch a little bit now on maybe primary care in general as a larger scope, which is we talked about earlier, the primary care physician shortage. What do you think we can do to address that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. Right. It's a great job. I <laughs> hopefully the fact that I love doing it comes across. Uh, I think it's totally critical to get primary care right uh, to maintain the health of of a population. And, you know, I, I often joke like I'm an aggrieved United States 
primary care doctor and I look with envy at some other Western European countries where the healthcare system is really organized around primary care, whereas in the United States, healthcare is organized around hospitals and specialty care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, at the same time, so, I, you know, uh, primary care can be this this chance to really improve uh, the health of Americans, but um, but it's a tough job right now because there, you know, the the demand is overwhelming. I already mentioned that our reimbursement structure is a little messed up. The electronic health record is tough. We have patients who are sort of operating as consumers now uh, and want to sort of get service quickly, and and they're mm-hmm. rating us now. Um, and so all of these things have kind of conspired to make primary care a pretty challenging job. And we're still trying to break out of this, uh, this organizational structure where it's one doctor taking care of a bunch of patients into something that's a lot more flexible where I'm operating, say, on a team of mm-hmm. check-in staff, nurse, uh, advanced practice professionals like nurse practitioners or physician assistants. And we're all taking care of and trying to do prevention for a a population of patients and getting paid to do that rather than just kind of churn through patients in clinic, which is, you know, it pays the bills, but at the end of the day, it's like not that satisfying and not what I signed up to do. I didn't come in to be a income generator widget (laughs) in a corporation. I got into this because I wanted, you know, build relationships with people and help them uh, be as healthy as they can be. Exactly. And I know from my perspective, I know a lot of medical students who do not go into primary care for that exact reason where they absolutely love taking care of patients and the longevity of care and being that uh, like primary person that the patient sees, but they see the kind of the lifestyle, quote unquote, where it's just a lot of paperwork and a lot of churning through that kind of thing. Not necessarily the best compensation for all of that work. And they maybe choose to go other ways. So um, that's definitely one of the things that could be addressed and would make it a little bit uh, more enticing for medical students to go into. The good news is that so um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, so CMS, the the um, the part of the government that administers Medicare, actually just increased the reimbursement rates for primary care. Um, so there's a recognition that primary care is underfunded, um, and so it's going to take a few years for the, for that those increased rates to kind of trickle through. Um, the entire healthcare systems to be, achieve any kind of balance between um, between salaries, but I think um, you know as uh, as as I've heard it put before that um, we spend about uh, four to six percent of American healthcare dollars on primary care, mm-hmm. and and one person sort of said like, okay, so is the rest of the ninety five percent a failure of primary care? And if we, most other company, most other countries spend about fifteen percent on primary mm-hmm. care, um, and so. You know, as a society, we probably should be paying a lot more for prevention and we would we'd probably wind up saving money at the back end. For sure. And that's kind of what our podcast is here to do. Promote prevention in a way of reducing risk in a lot of ways that we talked about in this podcast. And speaking of that, we did address a lot in this podcast. There's a lot of topics. So if you guys need to like listen to it again, feel free, go ahead and do so. Um, we're about to start wrapping things up. And our classic question at the end is, let's you're at your local Starbucks or Pete's Coffee, wherever it is, you're waiting for your coffee and then someone notices you. Um, hey, Dr. Linder, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in the two minutes that you're waiting for your coffee? I'll make it even, I'll make it way shorter than two minutes. Don't smoke, eat right, be a healthy weight, exercise. There you go. 
Short and sweet, exactly how we like it. All right, Dr. Linder, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to come on this podcast. You know, you're a busy guy. I hope you enjoyed it. Great. Uh, great Thank you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.